Hello, I'm Lara Hamilton. Welcome to Book Larder Podcast, where we share author talks from the kitchen of Seattle's Community Cookbook Shop. I went through the annual exercise of cleaning out my spice drawer a few weeks ago. It's always a time for me to sort of reflect on my cooking and understand how it's evolved over the years. What are the random odds and ends I'm getting rid of because I tried a dish once and then never made it again? What are the ingredients that used to be staples in my cooking but are now just languishing at the back of a drawer because I don't really crave those flavors anymore? And what are the newcomers that I find I need more of on a regular basis because I'm cooking with them so much? The spices that fit into that last category for me lately are things like sumac, za'atar, and urfa chili flakes. I'm making a lot more Middle Eastern food than I was even a few years ago. So I was especially excited when I first got my hands on Adina Sussman's new book, Sababa. Adina is a food journalist who has co-authored many cookbooks, including Chrissy Teigen's wildly popular Cravings books. She moved from New York to Tel Aviv a few years ago, and her first solo cookbook celebrates the meals she makes in her new home, which happens to be very near one of the very best markets in Tel Aviv. The book is full of vibrant flavors, and it's on many of those best cookbooks of the year lists that we see so much this time of year including those of the New York Times and the Washington Post, the list at Booklarder as well. On a recent trip to Seattle, Adina sat down with me to discuss cooking in Tel Aviv, how her Western upbringing influences her Israeli cooking, and what the market community in her new home city means to her. Here's Adina Sussman and Sababa. Well, thank you, Adina, so much for taking time to it's talk my with pleasure. me today. So happy to be here. Thank you for having me. And congratulations on the book. Thank you. It's so marvelous. And <laughs> thank you. Everyone here is just, you know, all of our staff are big fans. So that's so nice to hear. Thank you. It's called Sababa. Yes. What does Sababa mean? Sure. So Sababa is actually derived from an Arabic word, Sababa. And in Arabic, it's a high Arabic word that means like the highest form of love. And Israelis have kind of taken it on as a slang word that means everything's cool, everything's great. Mm. Um, So it's kind of the ender to a lot of types of discussions. It could be like, how was your meal? Sababa. Uh Or I'll meet you on the corner of 10th and I. Sababa. You know, so it's, it's a nice, positive, enthusiastic way to compliment someone or sort of agree on something in a country where there's a lot of disagreement. It's a nice general sort of statement that people make. Yeah. The book really celebrates fresh food. Yes. And you moved to Tel Aviv a few years ago. I did. Right by the very large market. I'm very jealous of your, the location of your apartment because it sounds amazing. The Carmel. Yes. It's right there. It steps away. We can hear the grates being pulled up sometimes on the storefronts in the the shook as the market is also called yeah I met my now husband about five years ago and he actually found our first apartment we recently moved to another place right in the same neighborhood and I think he knew that by finding me a place right near the market that I had a better chance of keeping me there (laughs) 
And it's worked out so great. It's, I love the Carmel. I love living in Tel Aviv and the food scene and just the way people cook at home just really speaks to my style too. So yeah. And the shuk just plays a role sort of through the entire book. It really does. You know, when I was writing this book, I was trying to figure out what I could contribute to the culinary conversation about Israeli food because so many amazing chefs have written books in the last few years. Michael Solomonov, who's a personal friend of mine and wrote the foreword to my book, which is so kind. Thank you, Michael. <laughs> and Anat Admoni just wrote Shuk and she had her Balabusta book and Alon Shaya. And, you know, I tried to figure out something that would advance the conversation or, or really make an impression on people in a different way. And I realized that writing a story about living near a market and cooking and a personal story about an American woman living in Israel and how she interprets the food through her lens of two countries might interest people. And luckily it has. It's really all based on the seasonal produce in Israel and the dozens of ethnic traditions that kind of infuse the culinary culture there. Um, The food is amazing in Israel. Yeah, it looks amazing. And it's very fun to cook there. Lots of lemon, lots of sun and spice. You Uh see a lot of sunny shadows in the book. We we, We photographed everything with natural light in Tel Aviv. And I really wanted to photograph the book there because I felt like it would just lend that extra sort of special something to the photos. And I feel like it really does. You kind of, you can see that different the light is and everything just looks tasty there. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. it definitely does. I also really appreciated you bring in a lot of sort of the people that you've gotten to know in your time there. Tell us more about some of those folks. I'd say they fall into two categories. One is all the vendors in the Carmel market who, after my 20th visit there, they kind of realized, oh, this woman is not a tourist. She actually might, I think she lives in the neighborhood and I do speak Hebrew and I just hung around a lot. You know, my journalistic instincts always kick in. I ask a lot of questions or try not to annoy people by asking too many questions, but just listening. And I got to know a lot of the vendors who are second and third generation vendors in the Shook. And I also realized that I had the privilege of capturing the Shook at a unique moment because they're talking about updating the Shook, which is a bit of a ragtag place right now and renovating it and putting a sun awning over it and putting in better irrigation and moving all the restaurants to one area so they can be better regulated. And a lot of the vendors might not last the gentrification of the Shook. They might decide they just want to pack it in. A lot of their children are high-tech executives or living in the United States. And, you know, this market culture may not be around forever in Tel Aviv. And I really wanted to capture it right now and and show the impact that it had both on me and sort of how it's the beating heart of culinary life in Tel Aviv. So yeah. people like third generation spice vendors, the Amrani brothers, a lot of tourists come through the Shook and ask me where the Armani spice market <laughs> is. And I'm like, it's the Amrani spice market. And, you know, their grandfather was drying the sweet peppers to grind into the paprika that they sold at the shop. And they have a beautiful courtyard in the back, a sort of secret courtyard where they've hung beautiful wooden edge sifters that were made by their grandma out of the sinews of goats, like surrounded by wood that they purchased. And there's just all this history and people from all over the world as Syrians, Arabs, Palestinians, Jews, Yemenite Jews, people from Russia, people from Eastern Europe, you know, Israel just is such, there are only nine and a half million people living in Israel. And there are just dozens and dozens of different ethnicities living in a really small space. And I think that that also really impacts the way people cook. And there's a real melting pot, you know, 
not to use the cliche, but it's really true there. Yeah, yeah. And then I've made a lot of friends in the culinary community in, in Israel, chefs and home cooks who write about food. And they sought me out because they knew I wrote a lot of cookbooks. And so I've helped a lot of people who are interested in doing that. And also... I sought out people who I thought could teach me something interesting about their culture or tradition. And there's a back page in the book that has all these portraits of yeah. all the people I cooked with. And I tell their stories too and where their dishes came from and how they fit into the larger picture of Israeli cooking, but always filtered through the lens of a home cook because, mm-hmm. you know, I've written almost a dozen cookbooks and they're all really geared towards simple home cooking and methods and ingredients that people can really wrap their heads around and execute like in a pretty streamlined way. You mentioned, you know, sort of the the melting pot of Israeli cuisine. Yeah. Is there something that's distinctive about the food scene or just the cuisine of Tel Aviv in particular? Tel Aviv has more startups per capita than Silicon Valley. And there's a real entrepreneurial spirit to Israeli life. People are always opening little businesses and restaurants. You've got everything from, you know, multi-billion dollar high-tech companies to hole-in-the-wall restaurants trying new concepts. And I think in Tel Aviv, more than even anywhere else in Israel, people are kind of willing to throw things against the wall and see what sticks like from a food perspective and try and blend cultures. I think what's going on right now in Tel Aviv that's really interesting is even more than the fine dining scene, which is interesting, there's sort of a PETA 2.0 revolution. (laughs) Like the PETA itself, which is the, you know, the traditional pocket bread of the Middle East that is kind of the national staple sandwich bread in Israel for everything from falafel to shawarma to sabich, which is a fried eggplant and potato and hard-boiled egg sandwich. So in 2011, Ayal Shani, who's a well-known chef in Tel Aviv, opened a place called Mizanon, which kind of means like commissary. And he really peeled back the layers to the pita itself and created something that in itself is very special. It's made with a sponge. It almost tastes a little bit like sourdough. It has a lot of holes and layers so that when you put food in it, it really absorbs and hold the food. You know, sometimes you put food in a pita and the pita kind of just falls yes. apart. And then that really emboldened people to put all kinds of interesting fillings into their pita. And there's this whole pita sandwich thing going on in Tel Aviv right now. People are putting in both a lot of really interesting fillings, like everything from the traditional stuff like kebab and offal to, you know, schnitzel. But then they're also doing things like ceviche or, you know, pulled beef and all kinds of interesting condiments. So I think that the pita thing is something that started in Tel Aviv, the new pita thing, and it's really fanning out all over Israel and all over the world, actually. Interesting. So you start the book with a whole lot of sort of pantry staples. Yes. Making your own, you know, za'atar even, you know, your own za'atar blend. And I'm just curious, do you see like a particular benefit to making things that you can also buy? No. I mean, yes, a lot, you know, your average Israeli isn't making their own za'atar, but I still felt like there are large swathes of the United States where you would have to go on Amazon and buy your za'atar online or buy it from New York Shuk or World Spice here in Seattle where I've ordered spices from. I wanted the book to be the kind of book where if there was something you wanted to make that night, you could make it. So like yeah. my za'atar blend, if you have fresh oregano, you know, you don't need hyssop leaves, which are the original za'atar is hyssop in Hebrew. But if you can find some fresh oregano, you can microwave the leaves for 90 seconds until they're dried and then mix it with sumac and sesame seeds and salt. And then you have the basis for so many of the ingredients and the, the recipes in the book. Same with pomegranate molasses. It's shockingly hard to find in certain parts of the country. Not everyone has a Middle Eastern market or even like a gourmet market nearby. So I reduced a good quality refrigerated pomegranate juice, which you can find in any supermarket. And I add a little bit of honey just to stabilize the reduction. And then in 40 minutes, you have homemade pomegranate molasses. 
molasses that tastes so much better than the stuff that you buy in in the store, which Mm -hmm. usually has preservatives or sugar or citric acid or food coloring. So, you know, I just I wanted people also to get a sense of the origins of these recipes, you know, so even though you're not they're not cooking the pomegranate molasses in a giant copper cauldron like they might do in Israel, just get that granular sense of cooking something at home and like the elemental ingredient that it came from, which I think connects you more to the the food and where it came from. Mm -hmm. So But, you know, on the other flip side, you know, if someone told me 10 years ago that you could buy a shakshuka kit in Trader Joe's, I would have (laughs) laughed you off the street. But now you can buy schug, which is one of my favorite Yemenite hot sauces that is really popular. You can buy amba, which is an Iraqi Indian savory mango pickle that goes in falafel stands at Trader Joe's. You can buy preserved lemons to make preserved lemon paste. So you can get the stuff a lot more readily than you used to, but it's nice to both have it be convenient, but also have the luxury of making it yourself at home. Mm-hmm. You also mentioned that you cook Israeli food, but sort of through the lens of a Westerner. Is there Western food that you are making through the lens of someone who has now been living in Israel? I think so. Yeah. You know, a lot of my dishes kind of look familiar, but transport you to the shook like when you take a bite. So I have one of the popular recipes in the book is the tahini blondies. You know, so a blondie bar is something that a lot of us grew up eating, really simple. I'm not really a chocolate person myself. I know that's controversial, but <laughs> I like I I fall much more firmly in the sort of peanut butter, butterscotch, caramel, vanilla camp and tahini to me is like a relative of peanut butter in flavor. So I make these blondies where I stir in a lot of pure tahini paste and then I add cardamom and two kinds of toasted sesame seeds. So you know, you look at you're looking at this thing that you might have in like an American snack shop, but like it tastes very Israeli. So I'll sometimes combine something that I had as a comfort food from home with something that I update with Israeli spices and maybe techniques. And there's also, you know, a za'atar roasted chicken. So Uh like a roast chicken is something that we all make, you know, roast chicken over potatoes. I grew up eating it, but I toss my potatoes in sumac and then I rub the chicken with a za'atar blend with lemon zest and garlic and olive oil and chilies. And, you know, so the idea is that the recipes are both familiar and exotic at the same time so that nothing feels undoable. But yet if you take the time to make it, it's really going to firmly plant you in Israel in the way that Israelis cook. You have written, as you mentioned, 12 cookbooks. I have. you are an accomplished journalist and, you know, I've been writing about food for a long time. How was this a different experience for you? Oh, you know, I just blinked and it was done in two weeks. (laughs) (laughs) Hardly. It was actually really hard. I love co-authoring books and I've collaborated with a lot of great people. And when I was lucky enough to get my own book contract, I really had a crisis of confidence because I had been writing in the voices of others for like a decade. And all of a sudden I, I was faced with a blank computer cursor and a kitchen where all of the ideas and everything that I had to say, I was going to have to stand by a hundred percent. My joke about the book is that until now I've kind of been like the handmaid, like I have the baby and then I hand it over to the mother. Yeah. <laughs> now I have the baby and I have to take care of the baby and nurture <laughs> the baby. And it's been amazing to figure out how to sort of shepherd a book from its inception all the way through to publication and, sh- and promoting it and sharing it and writing it. I really had to find my voice again, like my own individual writing voice to write a 368 page book, you know, and really develop an arc and a story without having to tell someone like Chrissy Teigen's story or other people that I write with and which I love to do. And so 
after a a little while, I took my own advice. And whenever I'm working with a co-author, they always say, when are we going to start writing? And I say, well, let's cook first and write later. And I took my own advice and I cooked almost all the recipes in the book and developed the culinary ideas. And I always tell people that we should do that because by the time I'm co-authoring and co-cooking with someone, after we've made 100 recipes together and put the food side of a book together, we've developed a language that we share about the food that we're cooking. And a lot of ideas and inspiration comes out of the food itself. So I cooked my own food and then created a new language with myself that I was able to express on the pages of the book. And it was really fun and also very nerve wracking, you know, to have to put a book out there and be the one to like look at the reviews with one eye open and see what people think (laughs) and hear everyone's comments about your cooking and your writing. But it's really gratifying. Good. We're heading into the holiday season. Yes, we are. So if someone was just going to just throw like a cocktail party, Uh a New Year's party, and wanted to use your book, what kinds of things would you suggest? First of all, I have some really fun cocktails in the book. Two of them are really nice for the winter. One is a pomegranate Negroni. Mm. And instead of Campari, I mix pomegranate juice and bitters. And it really has that lovely taste of a bitter aperitif. But yeah. it, you know, I just always have fresh pomegranate juice in Israel in season. And I, I either juice it myself or, or buy it in the shook. And one day I was having people over, as we often do, and I didn't have any Campari. So I made these pomegranate Negronis with uh, sweet vermouth and pomegranate juice and bitters and gin. And they just were a huge hit. And they're so easy to make. You can pre-batch them. And then I just pour them with like a beautiful blood orange wheel and maybe some pomegranate seeds in the in the glass. And then I have also bourbon that's infused with a spiced date syrup called Ceylon. Mm-hmm. And Ceylon is something you can buy online or in a local store sometimes. And I infuse it with warm spices. And then it's kind of like a Middle Eastern old fashioned is what I like to call yeah. it. It's really delicious. And then from a food perspective, I would definitely make a spread of my different colored tahinis that you could dip. I have a beet tahini and a green tahini that's made with all kinds of herbs and one that's infused with like a bright sunny yellow color with turmeric. I have a lovely homemade seeded cracker recipe that comes from some Christian Arab women in Northern Israel. I drove up there a few years ago and learned how to make these amazing crackers from them that have za'atar in them and nigella seeds and sesame seeds and olive oil. They're so flaky. They almost taste like shortbread and they're just so delicious. Everyone who eats them just can't stop eating them. (laughs) And then maybe I do, I have my sour lime and pomegranate chicken wings and you basically toss the wings in lots of lime juice and lime zest. Or if you're lucky enough to get Persian limes, you can grind them up and include that in a splice blend that has all kinds of Middle Eastern spices like turmeric, cumin, pepper, coriander. And then I do that overnight. And then I roast them on a rack. And then in the last five minutes of roasting, I take them out and brush them with pomegranate molasses. Mm -hmm. So they have this beautiful lacquered pomegranate color, and they have a really tart and sweet and rich flavor because of the wings. And they're just really delicious. So those are a few party ideas. No, those Negronis. Pomegranate Oh, yeah. It's it's a winner. (laughs) And you're celebrating Thanksgiving in the US. What are you making? Are are you a traditionalist or do you sort of incorporate your Israeli flavors in the... My hope is that there will not be one drop of tahini in my entire Thanksgiving dinner. (laughs) I want it to be like all American all the way. Yeah. Whenever I come here, people are like, what's your favorite Israeli restaurant in New York? And I'm like, 
dim sum. Yeah. You know, when I'm in the States, I crave those things that I can't get the same way that I could when I'm here. So while I do try out Israeli restaurants and like to cook Israeli food, sometimes when I'm in the States, if I'm not doing a cooking demo or talking about the book, I'll revert back to like the traditional things that I love. So actually my brother-in-law's family makes Thanksgiving and they're Orthodox Jews. So they do this amazing combination of like, it's almost like a combination of a Rosh Hashanah dinner and Thanksgiving. There's like stuffed cabbage and matzo ball soup and oh, roast wow. turkey and, you know, sweet potato pie and everything. Oh, so it's just, and pecan pie. So it's like a crazy combination. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, that's what we do for Thanksgiving. But I do like Thanksgiving traditions that incorporate different ethnic cultures. They wrote an article once about that, like Chinese people yeah. do, fry, like they'll do a stuffing made out of like fried rice and right. stuff like that. Yeah. And I also saw people were doing like the Peking duck. Yes. I saw like that. that. It's a genius it idea. Amazing. Yes. Yeah. Just saw that too. Yeah. And fascinating. Yeah. What about Hanukkah? Is your Hanukkah in Tel Aviv sort of oh. culinarily different than your Hanukkah in New York? I mean, one of the things about living in Israel is that a lot of American Hanukkah traditions are more Ashkenazi or Eastern mm. European Jewish in descent. And because half of Israeli Jews are Mizrahi, which are people from North African countries mm-hmm. or Sephardic Jews who have origins in Spain, there's a more diverse group of fried foods that people eat on Hanukkah to commemorate the supposed miracle of the oil lasting for eight days in the Holy Temple. So Ashkenazi Jews, the main food is uh, latkes or potato pancakes. But there is Moroccan sphinge, which are sort of like like a donut mm. that's fried in oil. I have a recipe in the book for something called shabakia, which is a beautiful, very flaky pastry that's kind of pulled into the shape of a flower. And then you soak it in like a delicious jasmine lemon syrup. So there are more fr- fried food is like a big deal on Hanukkah in Israel. And also jelly donuts are like oh, a huge yeah. thing. And there's the, all the um, bakeries are competing for who can come up with like the craziest flavors. You know, they have ones that have syringes in them. Like you'll see with, you know, oh, donuts, right. like Blue Star <laughs> donut style. Yeah. And they have um, jelly donuts. Yeah. So in the United States, people eat latkes. And I have a recipe in the book actually for a creamy green shakshuka over crispy latkes. And like, mm. that's sort of another example of my American and Israeli traditions fusing because because to me, that's almost like steakhouse sides. Yeah. And I love the the green shakshuka full of herbs and, and sautéed onions and like Swiss chard and spinach. The creaminess of that, which has topped over like a really crunchy latka. And like, it's a really good combination. So I'm going to be serving that this year. And I also Sounds like great. the idea of doing like a Hanukkah brunch, you know, uh-huh. like that. Also, I have like a Russian avaraniki, which is like a pan for like mm. a dumpling. And like, I think if I take them a little further in the pan and crisp them up more with a lot of oil. Like I'll serve them with olive oil and ikura and, and um, dill or something. Yeah. Which I think would be a good thing for the holidays. Okay. <laughs> this is your sort of the end of your book tour. Is there anything that you haven't been asked or didn't get to talk about in all of the interviews and many media that you have done? <laughs> yes. Is there any Israeli food that you despise? Is and I haven't any... even thought about the answer, but let's talk about it. <laughs> is there any Israeli food that you despise? Let me think about that for a minute. Yes, <laughs> I have one. They make a tahini out of nigella seeds. And it's so beautiful to look at, but it is so bitter yeah. and dense. And I have not found a way to incorporate it successfully into my food. The only way that I've had it that I sort of liked it was in Nazareth in the market they have a pastry shop that makes almost like a sesame bar but out of this nigella seed tahini but it's it's super intense and like i would love to figure out a way to turn it around and like it this year yeah yeah okay so it's not like you despise it completely there's always hope in the kitchen (laughs) always hope in the kitchen yeah Yeah. 
Well, thank you so thank much, you. Adina. This was really fun. It was. Thank, thank you so you. much. Thank you to Adina Sussman for taking time out of her whirlwind trip to Seattle to talk with me. As always, you can get 10% off a copy of Sababa and any other books featured on Booklarder Podcast by visiting booklarder.com and entering the code PODCAST at checkout. We have signed copies of many of the books that you've heard featured on the podcast, so be sure to get one of those while they last. They make wonderful holiday gifts. And if you visit us in the shop, just mention that you heard about a book on the podcast for 10% off in-store as well. This episode was produced and edited by Abby Circatella. Our theme music was composed by James Coley. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and if you like what you heard here, leave us a rating and review to help others find us. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where our handle is at BookLarder. For more information about BookLarder, including author talks, cooking classes, and to join our monthly email newsletter, visit BookLarder.com. And if you find yourself in Seattle, visit us in person at 4252 Fremont Avenue North. I'm Laura Hamilton. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.